Well, we're going to pick back up in Genesis and uh, go through the creation account. Uh, one quick note uh, before we get started. I was asked to announce one more time all of the uh, mugs and plates and various and sundry cooking utensils that are out there in the, in the foyer area. Uh, those are going to be official thrift store fodder soon. So, matter of fact, if you see something you like, just take it. <laughs> so, we go out there, browse, shop, it's all free. If you see something that's yours, you might want to grab it quick before someone else does. But there is some stuff out there, so please, uh, we're just trying to redistribute that, otherwise it will be going, if not, well, sometime between now and Sunday, I suppose. So anyway, it's right outside, and that is my only announcement for now. Um, so last week, we talked about the biblical basis for interpreting uh, Genesis, proper interpretation methods, and how important this book is. And I tell you what, I'm, I'm really starting to get the feeling that Satan doesn't want us to talk about it. Because man, he is just making life difficult right now. I'm going through the head cold thing again. Got this like relapse thing going on. Poor Mara has been having horrible tooth pain all day. She had to go down the hill, see the dentist, and try and get some emergency procedures done. I just got a text that she just got back home just now. Uh, so keep her in your prayers. She's in a lot of pain right now, uh, trying to get through that. So it's just been kind of a crazy past week and few days. Um, this is really good stuff, and so we need to pay attention. And because uh, I know, I know, I've had plenty of opposition speaking to myself personally, and uh, I know having in studying this, it's come become more and more apparent. It's reminded me of how incredible this passage is, how foundational it is to our faith, to even the doctrine of salvation. So uh, we covered that all last week. We're going to dive right into the text this week and really get into God's word. We're going to go go through the creation account. One thing I want to try and make clear, and it's my objective, uh, is that my objective is not to make this into nothing but a science lesson where we get off on all the many rabbit trails of, of uh, mitochondrial DNA and, and uh, uh, the speed of light and all these different things, which I love, quite honestly, and I, I love to talk about that stuff because what we believe in the Genesis account, Genesis account God himself is not at odds with science. And we need to know that. You know, uh, there's just so much that we could talk about. And so one of the things I'm putting together for you guys is a resource, a little resource pamphlet, uh, just a page or two of some websites and some articles and some things that you can dig into yourself that will talk about um, some recent discoveries as well as some things that have been discussed for a long time that support the liter literal Genesis account. Um, you know, things like mitochondrial DNA and the rate of erosion and, and the distance from the moon to the earth and from the earth to the sun and all these different things that are changing and things that we can track. Um, it's very fascinating. And it'll, and it'll encourage you. and It'll bolster your faith. And it'll be, make you more prepared to have those conversations when someone comes up to you and throw these crazy things at you uh, that they say support evolution and that we are the result of random chance processes over billions of years. Um, you want to be able to stand on your faith. And so I encourage you to check some of that stuff out. We're not all wired the same. I get that. We're not all as excited about cool science facts as I might be. But I encourage you to check some of those things out. So I'll have those resources for you. I'm going to print them and put them out in the foyer as well as I'll probably be handing them out next week and possibly on Sunday. Uh, so we're going to try and really keep this to a Bible study as opposed to a science study. Um, we want to study God's infallible word. 
And I want to share with you the truths that we find herein and really spend time focusing on that, as well as talking about more of the doctrinal issues that we encounter even within the church about Genesis and how people wrestle with and argue about how to interpret this and attempt really to reconcile Genesis with secular humanistic science and, uh, and try and make those things as if they're not completely at odds with one another, which they are. Uh, you cannot reconcile evolution and the Genesis account, speaking of macroevolution, speaking of uh, molecules to man type of uh, thinking and faith. Uh, you can't reconcile those two. And there have been many attempts. We're going to talk about some of the most prominent ones tonight, again, so that you are prepared to give an answer, so that you aren't caught off guard. Here in the first two chapters of Genesis, we have some of life's greatest questions dealt with. Like, who are we? Where did we come from? Why are we here? All these big, deep questions that people have been asking since we could think, uh, since we could write, since we could talk and argue about it. We've been talking about those questions. And, and Genesis has the audacity to answer those questions. They answer them clearly, quite honestly. So, one of the things I find most fascinating when we talk about this account and in talking with people who, who doubt it and question it, we look at the world around us, what we know is meant to point to our incredible creator. It's meant to bring him glory and, and tell us of who he is. And it's crazy to me how we can look at the same world and we see the glory of God. We're just in awe. We're inspired to dig deeper, to know more about him. And then you have someone who uh, is a complete rejecter, someone who's willfully ignorant, as God's word says, which translated that simply means in the Greek, purposefully stupid. But basically, they're intentionally choosing to not see God in it, but they'll see the same evidence. They'll see the same, the same amazing, dumbfounding works of a creator, an intelligent design, and, and they, don't, they don't come to the same conclusion. How is that possible? How can they see this amazing creation around us and all that we see, all that's talked about here in Genesis, and not conclude there must be an incredible, personal, uh, omnipotent God behind it. But they don't. They look at it and they go, isn't evolution amazing? Isn't it amazing how all of these incredible biological processes just sort of happen on their own and then sort of stay away from the whole Pandora's box of, well, how did that even start and where did it come from? We just don't talk about that part. But it reminds me of a story that I once heard told by uh, someone's pretty well known in the creationist community. He talks about these opposing worldviews, how someone can look at, two people can look at one circumstance and come to completely different conclusions. He talks about this farmer. He is out in his field, and he's, uh, he's got this cow that's about to give birth. And... Um, Someone who's from the city is driving by, and he sees this farmer struggling to help this, help this calf come out, and there's complications or whatever else going on, and, and it looks like he's really struggling. So this, this city guy is like, you know, I should help or something. So this good-natured guy jumps out, runs over there, and uh, he helps the farmer out. They set up, I don't know if you've seen this, but they have these like full-on winches that they use to pull calves out sometimes. It's a pretty gnarly process. Pretty shocking for this city guy. <laughs> pretty shocking. But anyway, they get the calf out and helps him out and gets and the calf's fine, cow's fine. And, and uh, the farmer's like, man, well, thank you. Appreciate you stopping and giving me a hand. Uh, you know, uh, this is pretty new, obviously, to you. Do you, have, do you have any questions about this? Can I show you 
on the farm or anything. And city guy kind of scratched his head, and he's like, actually, yeah, I've got one really important question. Exactly how fast was that calf running when he ran into that cow? <laughs> Two different perspectives on what exactly happened here. What's going on? Having to pull that calf out. But it's amazing how people look at creation and they come to just as absurd a conclusion. Amen? They look at creation designed by a divine creator and their, their conclusion is just as absurd. So... As we start in Genesis 1-1, why don't we pray together as we open God's word. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that your word is inspired by you. And though written by man, it is through your inspiration and guidance that it was written and preserved, and that we can hold it here and now. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be the teacher tonight, that you would speak to us through this account, Lord, that you'd show us how much you love us through this account. How even the story of redemption and your divine plan begins even in these very first few verses. So Lord, we pray you teach us and you'd open our hearts to be humble before you to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And the light God called day, and the darkness he called night. And so evening and morning were the first day. Now right from the start, we're confronted with some pretty big truths, aren't we? This is really the foundation of foundations. Quite honestly, if you can believe the first verse of the Bible, you really won't have any problems with the rest. You really won't have any problems with the rest of Scripture. Here we have God. This word in the Hebrew is Elohim. It's the supreme trinity, God in three and one. It actually is a plural form of God, this Elohim, this word that they use. So even from the very beginning, we find evidence of the trinity, but right off the bat, we see that there's some implications we have to take into account. Here we have someone, we have God, a being spoken of, who clearly is eternal because he existed before the beginning. We have the beginning, and he is the one who initiated the beginning. He is the only uncreated one. Everything else made by him. He is here declared to be eternally omnipotent, and nothing, clearly, is impossible for him. And that's one of the things that should strike us. Just in reading this first verse, in the beginning God created everything, in essence. Nothing is too hard for him. What is too hard for him? What is too hard for our God? Everything we see, everything we deal with, everything around us it was started, built, it was created by him. And granted, we are in a fallen state of that, it's not what he originally intended. It's not as good as it will be or as good as it was. But still, he created it all. He created it all. How great is our God. Revelation 4.11 reiterates this. It says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Romans 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches 
both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it should be repaid? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the God we're reading about here in these first couple of verses. Pretty awesome. The implications here. Who he is and what he has done. Now, there's a lot of controversy, again, over these first couple of verses. Right off the bat, these, these words are under attack. And mainly from those who would attempt within the church to sort of bring uh, about this um, melding of, of, of evolution and the church, of evolution and the Genesis account. Try to sort of bring these things together and reconcile mainly the dating issue, the issue of billions of years. And so we have, first of all, the gap theory. How many have heard of the gap theory? Some of you have heard of the gap theory. The idea that basically there is between verse 1 and 2 this massive gap. It's also known as the ruin restoration theory or ruin restoration creationism. And it's basically like an old earth creationism. The idea is that when we read this here in verse 1 where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that was some initial creation that happened. And just an unfathomable amount of time ago, billions, could have been millions, billions of years ago, God created all these things, something happened, and now it's without form and void. In other words, got destroyed, got obliterated, and that's what sort of accounts for the geologic fossil record, all of these things that the secular scientists point to, saying, look, billions of years and all this stuff, and they date it through using these various radiocarbon dating methods, and all this stuff that is difficult to argue if you don't know your stuff. And they go, well, how about we try and reconcile these two things, in essence, by going, well, there appears to be these two different creation accounts, like God's starting over, and they try and force within these two verses the idea that God created possibly billions of years ago, and, and then it all was destroyed, and then he started over. And therefore, we see all of these you know, ancient fossils and all of these things that, well, that are supposedly ancient fossils. And therefore, they try and bring these two together. What's interesting about the gap theory is, so they, they use that to sort of solve the whole age of the earth issue, but then they go on to still believe the literal six days of creation and tw six 24-hour days. So it still doesn't really fix the problem of, of the, being at odds with the whole evolutionary community, but that's what they try and believe. That's what they try and put forward. Well, there's some problems with that. First of all, they say that the gap during that gap of time is also when Satan fell, when Satan and his angels rebelled against God and they fell and they were cast down. Uh, that supposedly happened during that time. But there again, there's some real problems with this theory, and I'm just going to touch on them real fast. First of all, this, the implications of that is that death and disease and all these terrible things happened before Adam's sin, before the fall of man, which we're taught in Scripture is what brought about death and disease and decay and pain and suffering was that original sin of which we all inherit that nature, don't we? And that's what we're told, and that's foundational to the gospel message. The gap theory completely undermines that because it implicates that death and disease and all these things, decay, happened before Adam was even brought on the scene, before creation, which God declared was good 
If God said it is good, it is all good, how could he possibly say that about billions of years of death and disease and decay and mutations and issues? How could he say that? It doesn't add up to God's word, does it? There's some real problems with the gap theory. Ezekiel 28 also outlines the fall of Satan himself and in a comparison prophetically to the king of Tyre. But it speaks about Satan being in the Garden of Eden before he fell. Which, well, that kind of ruins the whole gap theory thing. Also Isaiah, Isaiah 48, verse 18, says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens and who is God. And this is an important passage you might want to jot down, Isaiah 45, because it deals with actually two controversial theories. It says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, and who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, or as the NASB translates, he did not create it a wasteland. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And so there we see a pretty clear indication. Listen, he didn't, he didn't have some sort of wasteland or uninhabitable place. And this really speaks more to something we're going to talk about a little later on, which is the day-age theory or theistic evolution talks about how the days really represent uh, eras of time, ages and ages of time. Well, if that's the case, this verse speaks very clearly to that. Isaiah 45 speaks very clearly to that. It says that he didn't create a wasteland. He didn't create something that was going to sit for millions of years as some bacterial goo that's sort of slowly evolving and mutating and through trial and error and, and uh, natural selection, eventually forming something that resembles life. Uh, that is not what Scripture says he created. It says he spoke and it was. And it was whole and it was good. And it happened in six days. So picking up back in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. And he called the light day, and he called the darkness night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And I'd like to cross-reference that with John 1, 1, verses you're very familiar with, I'm sure. And it talks about how in the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word? Jesus. I'll give you a hint. That's a classic Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus is the living Word, the Logos. He is the Word. He is the source of all intelligence and life. The order and design we see, Christ himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. In him is life, and that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And going on to verse 9, it says, And he was a true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And we see that God himself is the source of light, the source of energy, uh, the source of that which reveals and brings about life itself. You know, there's people that have trouble with the creation account because of the issue of light. Uh, one of the things they point out saying, hey, see, see, this is just a nice story. It can't be possibly real. As we see that light was created here on day one, but then we see that plants and, and all those things aren't created till the fourth day. And we see that the sun wasn't created till after the plants. Well, so how could the plants have been nurtured without the sun and all of that? And they sort of try and fabricate a problem for God, which is kind of silly. But first of all, don't you think that God 
the all-powerful, the one who created the sun itself, being the source of light itself, the one who gave the sun its light, can't provide the nourishment that the plants need for one day? Pretty sure that he can. I don't see that as a problem for someone who takes the word for what it is, who takes scripture for what it is. But also there's the issue of light and dating the universe. We're going to talk a little bit about, more about that later, if we have time. But one of the ways that evolution, one of the things that evolutionists point to that we do not have a young universe, we do not have a young earth, is they look at the stars and they go, well, look, we can now, with the advanced telescopes we have, and with the advanced uh, mathematical methods we have, all these resources we have, the technology we have, we can actually look at, knowing the rate of the speed of light, we can look at this light and say, well, if we can even see this light coming from a star at this distance, then the Earth must be at least X billion years old, because that's how long it would take for the light to even get here. And much of the light that we're seeing now is actually of stars that have since fizzled out. They're already gone, but we can't see that because the light's still traveling to us. That's how far away they are. So therefore, I mean, for us to be able to even see some of these stars means that the Earth must have been here for the light to travel this far for billions of years. And that could present a pretty difficult thing to answer unless you just read God's Word and take it for what it says. Because we read about light, we read about plants, we read about us, man and woman, did it, does it say that he planted seed and created babies? No. He actually created a mature universe, didn't he? Adam wasn't placed in the garden as a little baby, was he? He was, he was a full-grown man. The animals, the plants, everything had an appearance of age. It's interesting. But you look at that, and some people go, well, why would God be deceptive that way? He's trying to trick us. Well, no, he says it right here. What do you mean? He spelled it out for us what he did. We're told what he did. You don't want to believe it. That's the problem. But he created the universe. He created everything in an instant at his word. And it had the appearance of age because he created things with maturity. He created plants. He created man and woman. He didn't, he didn't put eggs on the ground that eventually hatched to chickens. He created chickens. He created reptiles. He created all these things. And they were, had this appearance of age, but they were brand new. They had just been spoken into existence moments ago. And so when we look at light, it's not a problem for God. God himself is light, and he put everything in place in an instant. He didn't, he's not the grand initiator of the evolutionary process. He put it in place. He, he, he didn't just start the process. He put everything in existence in complete and fully functioning fashion. That's what God created. That's what he did when he created and God's word attests very clearly to that. Colossians 1, 15 through 18 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body and the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to a first place in everything. And, and we, I love how that passage puts it in perspective. It says the God who created the whole universe, everything invisible and visible, this massive, amazing God is the head of our church. He's the head of us. He loves us. He's the one we look to. He's the one who is intimately involved in us. 
Now, reading on, as it talks about what we just read was the first day. And we talked a little bit about this last week. What in the world does it mean by day? It doesn't surely mean a day day, right? It must be one of those day, era day type days or something like that. And there's this whole issue. I had a conversation with um, someone down at the Dinosaur Museum down to Cabazon. Have you guys ever been there? Pretty cool place. And it's actually owned by Christians. Pretty neat. Uh, and there's a lot of creationist uh, material, a lot of neat science stuff in there that supports the creation account. But I was talking with one of the employees there, and he actually believed in the day-age theory. He believed in theistic evolution, and that the day was really meant to be interpreted as the day like an era, like a span of an indeterminate amount of time, and that evolution, God used the evolutionary process uh, to bring creation about. But again, we talked a little bit about this last week, and you know the English language is no different. We have words, the words that mean all kinds of different things depending on the context and how we use them and the qualifiers within the sentence and all of that. Like take the word run, for instance. If I say I'm going to go on a run or I'm going to run around the block, you know I mean I'm going to literally run around the block, right? Well, if I say I'm going to hop in my car and run to the store, well, what does that mean? That means I'm going to drive in my car to the store, right? But it means something completely different. I just use the same word. What if I say that uh, a big gasoline tanker truck just crashed in the highway and now the gasoline is running down the street? Does that mean the gasoline formed into a, grew legs and started running down the street? No. It means it's flowing down the street. It means a liquid is flowing down the street. And see, this word run can be taken to mean all kinds of different things. And when I use it in context and in a certain way, certain qualifiers, there isn't much doubt as to what I mean, is there? You know what I'm talking about. Now, you could take one of those phrases and say, you know, I, when I told you about how I ran from a bear, and you could think that that meant I turned into a liquid and went flowing down the canyon. But you know what I mean. You know what I mean. You know what I'm talking about here. And, and what's interesting is in Hebrew, and in, this, in the scripture here, the word day, the word yom, is used in primarily four different ways throughout scripture. But they're always with clear qualifiers. As we talked about as a recap, a day can mean simply the daylight hours. So it can mean from sun up to sundown, basically the light time of day. It could mean a 24-hour period, in essence, going from evening to evening or morning to morning. A day can also mean an era or an age of time. And so some examples of those that I just mentioned, you have Nehemiah 4.22. Speaking of a day, light hours, it says, At that time, I also said to the people, Let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem, so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So there's the use of the exact same word, yom, used right there, and it's clearly speaking of the daylight hours. Then we have Leviticus 23.32. It says, It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest, speaking of day seven, to you and, to, and you shall humble your souls. And on the ninth of the month at evening, from evening until evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. And the word day in there speaks clearly of a 24-hour period. Or also we have a day, meaning an age. We see various mentions of the Old Testament talking about the day of the Lord, um, which clearly speaks of a certain time period, not necessarily a literal day. Numbers 10.10 says, Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feasts, 
and on the first days of your months. So there we see day, the same day, same word, yom, were used two different ways. You shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices and peace offerings. And there shall be as a reminder before you and your God, for I am the Lord your God. So right there in that verse, we see day used to speak of an era of time and to speak of an actual 24-hour day. And then lastly, a day can also, the, the word uh, yom can also be interpreted meaning a point in time, some particular point in time in the future. For instance, in 2 Samuel it says, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, point in time when, when, uh, when things went bad. And so day can be men, meaning several different things, but again, we have very clear indicators as to how to interpret that word each time it is used. First, we have context. We talked about that last week. Read and understand what is being discussed there. But we have numerals. We want, one of the things we see in the Old Testament is the word day occurs 357 times outside of Genesis 1. This word yom, 357 times. Every single time it is used with numerals, it means a literal day, a literal 24-hour day, every time, without exception, outside of Genesis 1. When it occurs with numerals, it must mean a 24-hour period of time. But of course, when it's used in Genesis, it can't mean that, right? That's the one exception. Of course not. We see also God frequently used commands that his people were to do or to not do certain things on a given day. This occurs 162 times. A good example is in Exodus 24. Verse 16, it says, The glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And we see these various commands that occur on specific days or require specific days' attention. And again, without exception, it refers to a 24-hour day. And then we have descriptors. We have things that describe what type of day is being talked about. In this example, in Genesis, we see Evening and morning. I know that's tough to understand what evening and morning might mean, but it means exactly what it says, evening and morning. So we not only have numerals, which occurring 357 times outside of Genesis, always referring to a 24-hour day. We have the commands of God 162 times, and we have these descriptors, and we have context, all pointing clearly to a literal understanding of the word day. So is that tough to figure out? Is that kind of like, eh, I don't know what he meant there. That's pretty unclear. I think that's pretty clear. Maybe that's just me. Anybody else think it's clear? How many of you won't raise your hand no matter what I say? Gotcha. <laughs> just checking. All right, so we know how to interpret the word day. We know there are those who believe otherwise. Be aware of it. Know your, know your scriptures and know why we believe and interpret it the way we do. All right, so reading on starting in verse 6. It says, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. This word firmament literally means just an expanse, an expanse of space or visible arch of the sky. So clearly, obviously, in this passage, he's referring to the atmosphere. God created the atmosphere. He separated the waters beneath from the waters above. Uh, there are those who would propose that actually what God created initially in the perfect version of creation was a sense of a water canopy that surrounded our globe. 
and was at the highest point of the atmosphere and created this sort of greenhouse type of an effect for all of the planet. Basically, it was like Hawaii everywhere, which I think would be pretty cool. Sorry, snowboarders and skiers. Bummer. But uh, it basically would be this perfect climate uh, from north to south pole all over the entire planet. And it actually stands to reason the scientific evidence would back that up. What's also... Um, would tie into that very well is the account of the flood of Noah when we see where the waters came from and we'll read on that later on that it's thought that it was at that point that that water canopy fell and that that was collapsed and that was part of why the flood covered the entire earth for the time that it did. And so we see this firmament created, this perfect atmosphere. God here is creating the perfect habitable environment for his creation right off the bat. He's not taking millions of years to get around to it. He's creating a perfect habitable environment for his creation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the firmament later on because there's some confusion around that as well. Genesis verse nine, 1 verse 9, reading on, it says, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, an herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, an herb that yields seed according to its kind, and tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And so the evening and the morning were the third day. And this is that passage we talked about, how some people would speculate that this can't be literal because the sun hasn't been created yet, and how could these plants survive for millions of years? Because clearly a day means era without the sun. Well, again, if you take the word, God's word at face value, there is no problem here. The sun was not yet created, but God himself is the source of light. And that's what scripture teaches. Again, we, something else we see here, reiterated over and over, it says the phrase, according to its kind. Did you pick up on that? It's giving us a little hint about creation and how he designed it, about nature and what it's intended to do. Everything was designed very specifically to reproduce in a certain way. And in what way is that? According to its kind. So does that mean that I'm related to a banana? No, I'm not. Neither are you. Everything reproduces according to its kind. Yes, we do see an adaptation over time. We do see mutations. We do th see things changing and adapting within its kind, within its species. We see animals that grow thicker fur in colder climates. We see uh, beaks of finches that change slightly with different environments in order for them to be able to get the food that they need to get. And those that obviously don't have the necessary features simply die off. Those who have the necessary, that's natural selection, which quite honestly works against evolution, not for it. But we do see evolution in the sense that, yes, things do change within their kind, but we don't see, we don't see a fish becoming a reptile, becoming a bird, becoming a, a horse, becoming a gorilla, becoming a man. We do not see that. We don't see evidence of that anywhere in, in the observable scientific realm. That's faith right there. You want to know about faith? There it is. So God created everything to, according to its kind, and He reiterates this again later on in this creation account. Reading on, picking up in verse fourteen. And then God said, "Let the lights in the firmament of the heavens 
Let them be divided the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. So here's creating the stars and the sun and the moon. So let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and morning were the fourth day. So wait a second here. In reading this, at first glance, it appears that there is some sort of issue with the creation account because it says he put the stars and the sun and the moon in the firmament of heaven. Wasn't that the atmosphere between, between the earth and the water canopy? What, uh, clearly the stars aren't there. Well, again, that's, some, that's an objection some people raise because it can appear that way. The same word is used here, firmament, is the same word that was used earlier when describing when he separated the waters from the waters. The word heavens here that he called the firmament is the same word used earlier. So what is this talking about? Well, first of all, remember the firmament refers to an expanse in general. And one of the things we, again, will see very clearly in how to understand this is if we look at all of Scripture. We see Scripture teaches clearly that there is more than one heaven referred to using the same word. We have heavens. Actually, the word here is plural, the heavens. And we see really three uh, heavens spoken about in Scripture. We see the first heaven or firmament, is the atmosphere, which is mentioned being created there in those earlier verses where he separated the waters from the waters, our atmosphere. The second heaven being outer space, the celestial heaven, where the stars are, where the, where the rest of our galaxy and solar system is. The third heaven, God's dwelling place, that spiritual heaven where we refer to him, where he is at, where we get to join him until he creates a new heaven and new earth, should we be raptured or or just simply uh, lose this earthly tent. Uh, that's heaven, the third heaven spoken of. And here, he's clearly speaking of that second heaven, that celestial area, that area outside our atmosphere where God placed the stars and the sun and the moon and all of those things. And there is no contradiction or issue with that because it's consistent throughout all of Scripture. It teaches clearly what those, the differentiation between those heavens are. Excuse me. So I encourage you, don't get hung up on that. It's very clear when he, though he uses the same word, he skips from speaking of the atmosphere to the, the rest of the universe and speaking of the expanse and speaking of the firmament. Picking up in verse 20 in Genesis chapter 1. It says, And God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Thanks. You're too kind. Let the, let the waters abound with abundance of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament. Again, clearly birds are not flying through space. They're flying in the atmosphere. We know what he's talking about here. And God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abound according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And so evening and morning were the fifth day. 
You know, it's so interesting, it's fascinating to me, because at this time, obviously, when the creation account was recorded, was evolution this predominant theory back then? No, not at all. No one believed in the evolutionary theory when the Bible was, <laughs> was written, okay? But yet, we see that the author, inspired by God, clearly took the time to reiterate after its kind, after its kind, after its kind. And how it's almost like he, God specifically designed it for this day and time. Look at that, I used the word day in a different way. I hope I didn't confuse you. But look, it, here he, he says it over and over, and it wasn't an issue. Because they didn't care back then whether things evolved. They weren't even thinking about that, whether one species evolved to another. And yet God's word speaks to that issue because it's designed with an eternal nature, isn't it? God's word speaks to all eras of time. It's as valid and critical now as it was when it was first written. It's as applicable and relevant now as it was when it was first written. And though they didn't have that confusion back then, it speaks very clearly to what we need to know now. Everything according to its kind, and God saw it was good. Verse 24, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, the cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And this is the completion of all the creation of, of, of everything before man, of, every, of all the things that really was a setup leading to his, his crown jewel, his poema, his masterpiece, which is us. We were what he had in mind when he started the whole thing. How awesome is that to think about? We read in scripture that we are his workmanship, that we are what he takes pride and great joy in, and that all of this was really for us. He created this beautiful creation to testify of him so that we would be caused to worship him and love him and, and, just, and just adore him for the good things that he'd given us, that we would enjoy all these sights and smells and tastes and sounds and, and feelings uh, that he created. He created this. He set the stage. And now... We read on in verse 26, and then God said, we see this pause in the narrative there. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't just go on, okay, and then God creates this, and God created man. Oh, by the way, he created man, he created a woman, and he pauses there for a second. And God stops and, and says, by the way, who's he talking to? He says, God said, let us, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? The animals, clearly, right? <laughs> Obviously, the Trinity is, is clearly a doctrine from the beginning of Scripture, isn't it? Clearly, the Trinity is not something we need to doubt. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one. There is one God, amen? And He is in three persons. And so He said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in His own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which on the face of all the earth, every tree whose yields fruit. (coughs) To you it shall be for food. 
Also every beast of the earth and every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. And then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and morning were the sixth day. So we see clearly here that God created us, a unique creation, uniquely different than the rest of everything he had made, with a special purpose in mind. You see, from the very beginning, he had a different plan for us than he had for the rest of creation, that we would have a true relationship with him, that we would truly know him. And not only that, but that we would choose to know him. And this is the beginning of our redemption story, our God's plan of salvation, how he clearly had something special in mind for us. We see in 2 Corinthians, it says, Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 through 19, if you want to follow along, it says, Therefore from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. For even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he committed uh, to us the word of reconciliation. I bring up these verses because the creator of all the universe, the creator who physically created us in the very beginning, is also the one who makes us a new creation when we give our lives to him. You know, and each of us has a different story of how that might have come about. Some here may not have experienced that yet. But God, the one who created all things, can also make us new and has made us new. For those of us who have received that gift, he stands offering it. And the church is merely the gift bearer. We're here to deliver that gift. As it says here, he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. You know, we're not perfect. No, we don't have it all figured out. We're not without (laughs) errors and mistakes and shortcomings. But we bring good news. We bring good news that we've received. That the creator of the universe, universe can recreate you and me into something beautiful, into something perfect, into something that we can now have unhindered sweet fellowship with him and worship him for all eternity and to do the things we were created to do and that we would choose that. And that's the beauty of this whole plan. It isn't that he created us with a fixed purpose that gave us no choice, that gave us no option. We're going to read and study more about that next week when we get a little more intimate view of God's creation of humankind and and the choice that they had to make in choosing God or not. But, But we see that God's plan from the beginning was that it would be a meaningful relationship, that we wouldn't be merely forced to love him, that he was the only option, but we would truly choose him, truly choose him. And therefore, the, the relationship would be genuine, be one uh, that we chose to love him and enter into. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them.
So I encourage you, let's walk in those things now. Let's live as new creatures in Christ, remembering the God we serve, the all-powerful God who created all things, who brought all things into existence in six days by the word of his mouth, is also on our side and here with us now and is walking with us through this life. And in him we can do all things through Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the power that it holds, Lord, to set us free. Lord, may we walk in your truth. May we take your word for what it says. Lord, we thank you that you love each one of us, <coughs> that you know each of us personally. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who is yet to be made that new creation in you, that they, tonight would be the night that they do that, that they reach out to you and that they accept that gift, that they allow the creator of the universe to love them and forgive them and give them a new life and a hope here and now. So we give you this night and we ask your blessing on our fellowship. May we honor you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.